0: Thank you, choir, for that ministry. Uh, We obviously were blessed by that, and that's great to see. And uh, what a joy it is to worship our Lord together as one church meeting in different locations. And I again want to say hello to to the rest of our church who are worshiping in different locations, those in the chapel uh, right now in the Galleria, also those who are meeting at our Northwest Regional Center uh, at the Crowfoot Odeon Theaters. Uh, our East Edge ministry that's meeting in homes and, and our Gateway Church meeting down in Bridgeland and all of you who are, um, who are kind of tuning in from uh, Holden, Alberta and more recently now from Red Deer, Alberta. We just uh, bless you all and uh, just continue to pray for you all as we pray for ourselves here at the Central Campus uh, as we love on our respective communities in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm sure you will agree with me that one of the greatest virtues we hold high in our society is the virtue of faithfulness. For example, in the recent edition of Maclean's magazine, the editors point out that according to their research, staying faithful to one's marriage partner is a chief expectation we have uh, not only of our leaders, but also of each other. They also noted that nothing is more damaging to our reputation than being unfaithful to your spouse. Which leads to a question. Given the fact that we live in a society in which sexual freedom is increasingly celebrated and also in which biblical morality is frowned upon and ignored at best, why do most people in our society still have little or no tolerance for marital unfaithfulness well the Bible gives us the answer in Genesis 1:27, it says we are all made in the image of God and one of God's greatest character traits is he is absolutely faithful Psalm 145, verse 13 says, The Lord is faithful to all His promises. Psalm 33, verse 4 says, He is faithful in all that He does. Since we're made in God's image, we intuitively know what it means to be faithful. And that's why people who don't even believe in God will have little tolerance for those who are unfaithful to their spouse, which Tiger Woods, for example, can attest to. Intuitively, we value faithfulness. We admire and respect people who are faithful to their commitments, who hang in there even when the going gets tough. However, as much as we love this quality in others, we're seeing less and less of it being expressed in people's lives today. People sign up and say, you can count on me, only to walk away a short while later. A growing number of people resist making any commitments at all these days. This issue of commitment and faithfulness is, is sort of a dying virtue, even though we still admire it. Now, I bring that to your attention because... God's love and faithfulness uh, is the theme of the next book that we're looking at in our walk through uh, the Old Testament. And so I trust you have your Bibles with you, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of Hosea, which follows Daniel, which we looked at last week. Uh, And um, we're going to be looking at this book today. Hosea is the first of the 12 minor prophets which means we have now covered 27 books of the Old Testament, 862 chapters so far. We've been going along at a clip of just under 10 chapters a sermon. I think that's pretty fast. And uh, we have only 12 more books to cover in the Old Testament, so rejoice and be glad, the end is near. Now, some of you are probably wondering what the difference is between a major prophet and a minor prophet. Well, the difference isn't one of importance. All of the books of the Bible are important. The difference is simply one of size or one of length. The major prophets, like a good sermon, are longer. (laughs) Uh, That was supposed to be funny. Not very many of you laughed. So we'll just move on and be real serious from now on, okay? All right, let me remind you of the major events that lead up to the book of Hosea. When the children of Israel settled in the land that God promised them after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they were ruled initially by judges or political military leaders. And then they were ruled by a series of kings which they had asked God for, remember? beginning with King Saul, then King David, and King Solomon. After King Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam became king, and through a series of leadership blunders on his part, the nation of Israel was torn apart by a civil war, and when the dust settled, Israel was divided into two territories, the northern kingdom referred to or called Israel, and the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. Sadly, in the years that followed, both the northern and the southern kingdoms deteriorated morally and spiritually. And yet out of his love for them, God sent a series of prophets like Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea to wake them up and to call them back to God. But the people didn't want to hear what the prophets were saying. And so after decades and decades of warnings, God finally turned them over to aggressor nations, allowing the northern kingdom of Israel to be conquered and taken captive by the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C. And 150 years later, allowing the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem to be conquered and taken captive by the nation of Babylon in 586 B.C. Now, Hosea was called by God to go and to do his prophetic ministry among the people of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was there and actually saw some of his prophecies fulfilled when Assyria attacked and conquered that nation. It's possible that he escaped to the southern kingdom when all of that began to come down. Now, Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah and of Amos and he lived about 3,000 years ago during the same era that the city of Rome was being founded and also during the time uh, that Buddhism was being introduced by Gautama in India. Now verse 1 of chapter 1 tells us that Hosea lived during the reigns of four kings down in the southern kingdom And also the reign of Jeroboam, king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he ministered as a prophet for over 60 years. However, before we're introduced to his ministry and to his prophecies, we're told the story of his love life. A very strange love story, in fact. But as we're going to see in a moment, a story that powerfully illustrates God's amazing love and faithfulness for his people but before we get into the story I want to just dedicate our time in the word to God in prayer so would you stand with me please our heavenly father we stand out of respect for you and for your word And Lord, we ask that you would speak directly to us from the life of Hosea and Gomer today. And that you would soften our hearts, you would give us clarity of mind, and then, Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said a moment ago, the the book of Hosea starts out with a love story when Hosea is young and still unmarried. Beginning in verse 2, we read that the Lord asks Hosea to marry an adulterous wife named Gomer. Now some interpret this to mean that God tells Hosea to, to marry a woman who's already a prostitute. However, most Bible scholars believe Gomer was not adulterous at the time that Hosea met her, but that she became one sometime after they were married. The problem is, of course, most of the details of Gomar's life are left out. We really don't know what events led um, uh, to this story. And we don't know how her life unfolded. What we do know from reading chapters 1 and 2 is that men were very attracted to Gomer, indicating that she was very likely a a beautiful woman. Now, in those days, beauty did not always work in a woman's favor, especially if she grew up in a broken home, didn't have a family or a father to protect her. And so while Gomer's beauty may have been one of her greatest assets It also, in that day, may have been one of her greatest liabilities. It was not uncommon in those days for a beautiful woman who had no family or no resources to be enslaved against her will, forced into prostitution, or in some cases, to be a mistress or even a wife of a prominent man or a king who would dress her up in fine clothes and jewelry to show her off to other men kind of as his prize, the way that Queen Esther or Queen Vishta was Xerxes' prize, for example. So even though we'll never know how Gomer's life really played out, I like the angle that P.L. Bromley takes in telling her story. Bromley speculates that Gomer was forced into slavery and somewhere along the way, her master, perhaps for financial reasons, put her on the auction block to be sold. And it was while she was being auctioned off that Hosea happened by. And he happened to notice her. And he was immediately smitten by her beauty and fell in love with her at first sight. So much so that he actually bid for her and won the bid now because she was being sold in the slave market Hosea undoubtedly knew she had likely been with many other men but that didn't dissuade him at all because he knew it was unlikely she had chosen this lifestyle only one thing made him hesitate however and that was what would God think about him marrying A woman like this well God speaks to him and says Hosea go ahead and take her as your wife you have my blessing because through her I'm going to teach you and all of Israel how great my love is for all of you well Hosea gladly purchases and then marries Gomer and Gomer is grateful as well at last she is with someone who actually loves her and cares for her and so they live happily together and they are blessed with three children along the way unfortunately as the years pass gomer's troubled past begins to resurface in her life she feels unworthy of the love that's being shown to her by hosea she even feels unworthy to be enjoying her life as it is. There is all kinds of turmoil that begins to happen within her. And so instead of sharing her pain and her shame and her insecurity with her husband Hosea, she begins to pull away from the best thing that ever happened to her and from the only person who ever loved her unconditionally. And as God predicted, she goes back to the only thing which made her feel loved and valuable in her past and that was men wanting to be with her and the more they de- they desired her the more they stared at her the more they gave her gifts the more they complimented her beauty the more her hunger grew well one day hosea comes home and he finds a dear john letter on the kitchen table and it's from gomer who informs him there is another man she has needed and she has loved and that she is leaving him. We read in chapter 2, she leaves her family. She essentially walks away in the arms of another man. But that doesn't last very long and soon she's with a different man and then she's with a third man and so on and so on. Over time, Her lifestyle begins to take a toll on her body and on her beauty and eventually no one wants to be with her anymore. Destitute, broke, lonely. She goes back to the slave market. She sells herself to be auctioned off to the highest bidder. Now during all this time, Hosea never stops loving her oh he's heartbroken he's cried a bucket of tears all of this has been devastating to him, to his family to his reputation then word comes to Hosea that his wife is about to be sold again in the slave market and Hosea turns to God and God says to him Hosea do you still love her despite all the hurt she's caused you and Hosea says yes and in chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Then go and show your love to her again. In the same way, I love my people Israel. And so Hosea goes to the marketplace, the exact same place he first saw her, the first that he first bought her years earlier. And he watches as Gomer is brought up and stripped of all of her clothing, of all of her dignity, paraded around naked for all to see. The bidding begins, and Hosea does whatever it takes to buy his wife again. And then he goes to her, and he tenderly embraces her. He covers her nakedness with his own robe. He looks her in the eyes, and he says, Gomer, I know you don't believe me, I know you can't even really understand this, but I love you. I have loved you all during this, and I will never stop loving you, caring for you, providing for your needs. And chapter 3 suggests that Hosea's unconditional love just overwhelms Gomer. So much so from this point on, She is never unfaithful to him again. She becomes an honest, faithful, and loving wife. It's a strange love story because it's rare to see Hosea's kind of love these days. And yet I believe that God includes this this story in the scriptures to communicate two truths to the people not only of that day but also to the people of our day. First of all, God wants to help us to understand how much he loves us. God wants us to know that he loves us unconditionally. The reality is we've all grown up in a world that measures good and bad on the basis of our performance. When we do something right, when we do something well, our parents, our teachers, our coaches, they, they, they embrace us and they say, good job. When we do something wrong, or when we fail miserably at something, usually the message is the opposite. And you see, learning these behaviors is important if we want to get along well with others in our society. There's nothing wrong with coaches or parents you know, showing us and encouraging us to, 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 to live in a, in a right way. That's not the issue. The trouble comes when we begin to think that this is how God operates as well. When we assume that the God who sees everything assesses our religious performance and loves us when we are good and is mad at us when we're bad. And so... If I want God to love me and to bless me with good things and to think well of me, well, then I need to do this long list of good things and I need to avoid doing this long list of bad things. And a life like that can just result in unbelievable legalism, pressure, unhappiness so here is Gomer she has little good to show for her life her list of bad behavior is long and yet despite her sinful past Hosea loves her anyways and God is saying through Hosea everyone matters to me even those who have wandered away those who have disobeyed or disappointed me they still matter to me You know, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. You know, I like the observation that James Byron Smith makes about this passage. He says, some people view God's love as conditional and would be more comfortable if Jesus had said something like, for God was so mad at the world that he sent his son to come down and tell them to shape up. And whosoever would shape up would have eternal life. Yet notice what this passage does not say. It does not say that God so loved a few or some. It says God so loved the world. And the world as we know it is full of sinners, which means that God must love sinners. Notice also that God did not say for God so loved the good people, the righteous people, the religious people who do everything right. No, it says he loved the world. He loves all of us despite our brokenness, despite our failures, our sinful condition. Every person on this planet can look in the mirror and say with absolute assurance, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. God's love is unconditional. It's also eternal. His love is faithful. It never ends. Despite all the pain that Gomer had caused Hosea, he takes her back. He loves her. He cares for her. He treats her as if she had never sinned in the first place. And folks, that's a picture of God's love for us. God never stops loving us. Even when we fail Him, when we've blown it yet again, His love for us never diminishes. Now I want to be clear about a couple of things. There are always consequences that come when we disobey God and sin. Hosea, he brought his wife back home to his family again. He treated her like she had never blown it. He kept loving her. However, one thing he could not give back to her was the wasted years. He could not give back to her her beauty and the healthy body she once had, but lost because of her sinful lifestyle. Make no mistake, friends, there is always a cost that comes when we decide to live our life our way rather than God's way and explains why God pleads with us over and over again in the Scriptures to follow Him, to obey Him, to do these things and not these things because like a loving Father, He doesn't want to make our life miserable. He wants what's best for us he has our best interests at heart another thing that I want to be clear about is God's love does not mean that he won't allow us to be disciplined when people face hard times they often blame God they often point to the hardships they're going through and they say see this just proves that God does not care for me and yet like any loving father who disciplines his son out of love. It is precisely because God loves us that he allows us to be disciplined. Not every hardship is the result of God's discipline, but at times he allows us to be disciplined, to wake us up to the fact that we're on a destructive pathway, that we're missing his best for us. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to enrich and grow our character. Yet his underlying motivation in all of this is always love. A love that never ends. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Psalm 89.2 says, God's love will last for all time. Now that is so different than human love. Human love has a tendency to wear out, to give up. And that's why so many marriages are in trouble these days. Couples feel, they feel that they don't love each other anymore. They just don't feel it anymore. And so on that basis, they look for a way out rather than a way through. And that is why we need God's love in our lives and why we need it in our marriages. Human love may wear out, but God's love never wears out because God's love is an agape love, which in the Greek means it's a decision to love apart from feelings. When I love with a godly, agape love, I choose to love you even if I feel you don't deserve it or even if I don't feel love coming back from you. I choose to love you on your good days and your bad days. In the same way, friends, God will never love you anymore than he does right now. Neither will he love you any less than he does right now because his love is not conditioned by your response or your behavior. You know, others may judge you, refuse to forgive your failure, but God's love never forsakes you. And that is because God's love is unearned. It is undeserved. I mean, think about it. Do you think... Humanly speaking, that Gomer deserved to be accepted and embraced by Hosea again? Not a chance. But the reality is, neither, neither do we deserve to be accepted and loved by God. God's love and grace is undeserved, it is unearned. And many would say it's unfair, which, if you look at it, it really is unfair. But that's why it's called grace, unmerited favor. You can't do anything to earn it or deserve it. All you can do is to humble yourself and to receive it. Some of you have all kinds of regrets about the way that you've lived your life. Like Gomer, you may believe you've crossed the line of of no return, that God will never forgive you for what you've done. Well, friend, if you're thinking that, then you really don't understand how much God loves you. You don't understand His grace. The reality is, what blocks forgiveness from happening isn't a reluctant Heavenly Father who wants to see us squirm and pay for our wrongdoing before He dishes out forgiveness. No. What blocks forgiveness is us. It's our refusal just to humble ourselves before God and to reach out and accept the grace and the forgiveness that He offers us. Through Hosea's story, God in effect says to you and me, do you want to know about the kind of love God has for you? Do you you want to know what it feels like to be God? When one of these two legged humans stops running away from me and turns around and reaches out to me, it feels like I just reclaimed my most precious possession. And, folks, in the same way that Gomar finally understood and accepted Hosea's love for her and lived in victory from that time on, so we will live with a whole new liberty and joy and peace when we really understand that we are loved unconditionally and eternally by our Heavenly Father. That's the first reason I believe God included this strange love story in the Scriptures. He wants us to know how much He loves us. There's a second reason I believe that God included this love story And that is to help us to understand how much He longs for us to love Him back. How much He longs for us to love Him above all else. You know, a lot of people... I had a woman come up to me here two months ago. It was actually the Northwest Regional when I was was there. And she said to me, uh, Have you ever read Ezekiel chapter 23? I said, Yeah, I think so. Can't quite remember it, but uh, I think so. So after I went home and I turned over to it, it was—it was, yeah. You got to read Ezekiel 23. It'll—it's it, quite the chapter. And yeah, she said I can't make sense of that at all. I don't even know why it's in the Bible. But you know, a lot of people. Essentially, what she was really saying to me uh, from that particular chapter is, uh, why is there so much sexual imagery used in the scriptures, like we see here in Hosea or in. Ezekiel chapter 23, or Jeremiah 2, or the Song of Songs. Now, and I I see some of you already turning to (laughs) Jeremiah 23. I got to look at this, okay? Now, stay with me, okay? You can read it after, all right? But why? Why the sexual imagery? I mean, is it just for shock value? I mean, is it just, uh, you know, um, to keep our attention? I don't think so. I believe it is to help us grow in our understanding of his love for us by using illustrations that speak to our feelings and to our emotions and not just to our minds. And so he uses the Song of Songs, for example, with all of its vivid descriptions of a young couple passionately making love to each other to help us to understand the kind of spiritual intimacy that God wants to have with each of us. Or he uses Gomer's betrayal and Hosea's a broken heart here to help us understand how grieved God is when the object of our highest affection is someone other than him. You see, God wants to be more than this distant deity up there in the distance somewhere that, you know, we, we just kind of cower, we're, we're afraid of him, and we just kind of do what he wants us to do. God wants to be the lover of our soul. He wants to be the center of our hearts. And God says in the scripture again and again, if you want a hint of the depth of intimacy I want you and me to have, then look at the sex act. Look at the greatest rapturous expression of human love. God says that is an imperfect, incomplete picture of what I want for you and me. I want you in my arms. I want you to long for me spiritually the way that you long for your lover physically only much more than that. Tim Keller really hits the nail on the head. On this subject and I just want to give him credit for some of what follows he says when God talks about worshiping him or worshiping other things he often uses sexual imagery in the scriptures to say to us that in the deep recesses of our soul we all go to bed with something spiritually And our spiritual relationship with that thing is every bit as powerful as a physical or sexual relationship. He said, if it's not God who is the lover of your soul, if it's not God in whose arms you are spiritually, if it's not God who is the source of your meaning in life, If it's not God whose affirmation is the source of your self-worth, if it's not God whose power is the source of your security, if it's not God, then you're in bed with something else spiritually. And you're every bit as spiritually vulnerable and bonded to it as you are the person that you're having physical sex with. And so he uses this strange love story between Hosea and Gomer in part to say this. Think of the spouse you love and have committed your life to, the person you share everything with who knows you better than anyone else, the person who you have made yourself totally vulnerable to, trusted in every way, the person who shares your bed. Now imagine this person that you adore rejecting you, telling you that you no longer satisfy them, walking out of your life in the arms of another person, a person they say is all that you aren't, and then some. Can you feel the psychological torture of that? That, is the kind, that, that kind of suffering is probably the worst kind of suffering there is. Well, if you have ever had a spouse walk out of your life and give their love to someone else, then like Hosea, you now know firsthand how God feels when we give our heart to something or someone other than to him. And God gives this imagery of an unfaithful gomer to help us understand at the feeling level that our sinning isn't just about breaking God's law. It's breaking God's heart. It's an indication that we're in bed with another lover. That something's come between you and God. And you're missing out His very best for you. It's breaking his heart. So how do we know we're in bed with something other than God? Keller says, you know, when something other than God defines your worth. When something other than God defines your identity and serves as your form of security. It is anything so central to your life that should you lose it, you would feel that your life is no longer worth living. You know you're in bed with someone other than God when most of your thoughts, your emotions, your passion, your financial resources are devoted to it, just flowing in that direction. It can be marriage. It can be your children. It can be career or business success. It can be beauty and looking good. It can be money and possessions. It can be secure and comfortable circumstances. It can be the approval of others. It can be a romantic relationship. It can be fame, sex, pleasure, power. It can be your need to be independent. It can be an incredible noble cause that you're working for, that you're devoted to. Whatever it is, it, whatever it is, if it defines you, if you have no meaning, no purpose without it, then you're in bed with it now Keller points out that when life is good these idols have a way of sneaking up to us and a lot of times we really don't spot these idols in our lives until trouble comes our way or they're taken away from us so For example, take two female friends. They both are laid off. The one is okay with it, turns to God, makes decisions, and moves forward. The other one is devastated, soaks in self-pity, resentment, and anger for months. Why the difference? Well, the woman wallowing in self-pity Maybe in bed with success and job security. We know this to be the case because when it's taken away from her, she falls apart. Her security is in her job, not in the Lord. Or here you have two male friends. Both face major disappointment in their marriage, they aren't being abused physically or otherwise, nor have their wives been unfaithful to them. Rather, both are feeling a loss of emotional and physical intimacy with their wives. Their love has grown cold. They've become roommates rather than lovers, and they long for so much more. The one man determines to hang in there, do all that he can to do what the Bible calls him to do as a husband, to love his wife. And he prays and he trusts God to bring renewal to his marriage. The other determines to get out of the relationship. Similar situation, similar disappointments, yet two different outcomes. Why? Well, the man who wants out may well want out because he's in bed with romance and sex. His need for a certain kind of marriage relationship has taken center stage in his life. And his craving for his wife's love has become more important to him than his craving for his heavenly father's love. The point is, you can usually tell when you're in bed with something other than God when it's taken away from you, or even when you contemplate where you'd be if it were taken away from you. Now the reason that God wants us to give Him ultimate affection of our heart is because He knows us. He created us. And He knows that if we're in bed with anyone or anything other than Him we will not only miss his best for us, but we're going to face huge disappointment the day we die. I mean, if you build your life around love and romance and sex, for example, one day your beauty is going to fade and your body is going to wear out and wrinkle and it's going to fail you. If you build your life around a love relationship with another person, And they build their life totally around you. One of you is going to plan the funeral of the other one day. And God is saying, So, where then will be the God that you made for yourself, that you built your life around? Where is He now? That is why, folks, all through Scripture, God keeps warning us about putting our hope and our affections on things other than Him because He is eternal. He is a fortress, a rock upon which we can stand. He will never leave us or forsake us. Yes, our unfaithfulness hurts Him in the same way that we are hurt when the person we love walks out on us. But even more, we hurt ourselves by our unfaithfulness. And that grieves the heart of God even more because His love for us is so immense. I'll close with this. In His book entitled Pressures Off, Larry Crabb tells of a time when he was three years old. And for a period of time, their family stayed in their um, grandparents' home. It was a large two story um, uh, old, old fashioned kind of house. And in this home, the bathroom was on the second floor. And one Saturday, Larry decided as a three-year-old that he was now old enough, a big boy, that he could go to the washroom by himself. And so he climbed the stairs, closed the door, locked it, and went about his business. And all went really well uh, until he tried to unlock the door. And try as he might with all of his 3 year old strength He could not unlock that door, and so he panicked, thinking, of course, he was going to spend the rest of his life in the bathroom, and he began to scream, his parents heard him, his mother raced up the stairs, on the other side of the door said, are you okay, did you hurt yourself, and he just screamed back and says, I can't unlock this stupid door, get me out of here. In the meantime, his father headed for the garage, got the ladder, leaned it against the outside of the house underneath the bathroom window, climbed the ladder, pried open the window, and climbed into Larry's temporary prison and proceeded to unlock the door. And Larry thanked his dad and ran out to play. Now Larry goes on to write, You know, that's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I got stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself. When I can't, I should pray. Then God shows up, hears my cry, unlocks the door to the blessings and the good life that I desire. Sometimes he does. But now, says Larry, no longer three years old and approaching 60, I'm realizing the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, he says, are any of us content with God and God alone? Is he enough... Or is our love and our obedience to him based on what he can provide for us? Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door we most want opened? When a marriage doesn't heal? When rebellious kids still rebel? When friends betray when financial troubles threaten our comfortable way of life, when our health worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies, when our ministries crumble and fail. Larry says, God has climbed through the small window into my dark room, but He doesn't walk by me to turn the lock that I can't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and he says, come, sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. I don't always see it that way. Get me out of here, I scream. If you love me, unlock this door. I want to live the good life. Larry concludes by saying, the choice is ours. Either we keep asking him to give us what we think will make us happy, which breaks God's heart, by the way. Because in doing so, we're really telling the Lord that we crave what he can give us more than a relationship with him. Breaks his heart. Anyways, Larry says, either we can keep asking him to give us what we think will make us happy, or we can accept the invitation to sit with him and to seize the opportunity to know him better and to experience his amazing love for us. My prayer is that through Hosea's story, all of us will have come to realize in a whole new way not only how wide, how long, how high and how deep God's love is for each one of us, but also how much He wants us to be in His arms and to be at the center of our heart. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. A love that extends to all, that is personal, that is unconditional, that is eternal. Thank you, Jesus, for extending to us the ultimate act of love by dying in our place on the cross to pay for our sins. Lord, examine our hearts right now I pray for those who, like Gomer, have all kinds of regrets for the way that they've lived their lives. And I just pray, Lord, that today they finally will understand how much you love them. And that by your grace, forgiveness is theirs if they will just just humble themselves and reach out to you and ask for it. For those of us who are running way too fast, who are feeling like we never quite measure up to all of your standards. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you accept us not on the basis of what we do for you, but on the basis of who we are in you. The basis of the relationship we have with you. And we can know that through your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to understand and accept your unconditional and faithful eternal love. To sit often with you in order to know you better and to receive your direction for our lives. And Lord, give us a renewed conviction to hold the created things loosely and to hold you, our creator, tightly. Knowing that in the end, all the things this in this world that we Tend to long for will grow strangely dim in their importance in the light of your glory and your amazing grace. Thank you, God, for being such an amazing, faithful God. We love you for it. Thank you for being our fortress, our rock upon which we can stand. For we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now oh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.